Brethren and sisters, brethren, hey, screwheads, listen up. Before we begin, it's time to discuss ongoing business. Before we begin what comes before we begin, we have to address the snack treats situation. Snacks, yes. Yes, yes. I'm mm. hungry. Absolute snacks. We before need snacks. we begin yes. what precedes what begins, that which comes before we begin, we have to consider the drink selection. Well, before we begin, uh, what precedes what begins, prior to that which precedes what begins, that antecedents, um, we could stop to consider the powder selection. Yeah? Oh, come on. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> this guy. Come on. That's what I'm talking hey, quiet, about. You. All right, all right. Quiet, hey, it's time for other business. The hazardous materials vault has been resealed, and I've stuck that weird time map in there. Is someone watching over it? Oh, yes. Top men. Ooh, what men are these? Top men. All these tops and not a single bottom. Huh. Okay, so what's next? Item two. We're going to need men um, of the top variety. Phrasing. Here's Ser uh, seriously, <laughs> all I got down there is Brother Methuselah and a broom, and the broom technically outranks him. Oh, that guy again, Jesus. Hey, here's a point of order. What about my goddamn shop? It's a disaster area. I demand compensation. <laughs> if you're referring to Operation Someone Else's Problem, it was a complete success. Yeah, it's my problem. And that makes me your problem until it's fixed. You know, I heard the chumps have formed a literary discussion circle, but I guess that's someone else's problem. Hey! Well, we could just take some money out of the ludicrously overblown bug powder budget. Hey! This is not other business. It's not on my other business list. This is unauthorized additional business. I promise we'll deal with it later. <sighs> Fine. Okay, so what is tonight's movie? <laughs> I guess we forgot to pick one. Uh, um, I have a little-known experimental psychodrama from... No! Wait, you guys really just watch movies? Weren't you paying attention? You read the word film like five times. Yeah, no. I wasn't paying attention at all. And I kind of thought you were all like LARPing or something. <laughs> we don't just watch movies. Tell her! Tell me what? Should I be worried? We watch terrible and weird movies and decide if they're gonna make people start to... Everybody knows the terrible and highly specific symptoms of Cinemania. There's no point going over it again. But what is Cine... Moving on. I still don't... Moving on. We watch them, we scrutinize them, we stick them in the vault. So, like a Mystery Science Theater meets Siskel and Ebert kind of deal? More like the Legion of Doom meets the Onion AV Club, but basically, yeah. Huh. And all this time, I figured it was just a shuttered, lackluster video. Oh, wow. There hasn't been a lackluster video since 1998. Well, actually, it was front row video. First, before lackluster bought them out, and then the chain went bankrupt after a series of scandals involving the FBI and an international nuclear arms uh, dealing uh, ring. I, I really don't care. So, let's watch a movie. That sounds fun. I've got time to kill until my store gets repaired, I guess. So, who runs this whole deal? Do you follow some sort of ancient prophecy or something? Ooh, is there a chosen one? Well, um, <clears throat> we like fezzes. And mind-enhancing, entirely medicinal substances. 
Our duties are many, our responsibilities dire, our reach is infinite, and our punctuality is pretty good. Right, Andre? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically, we all throw out suggestions and end up watching whichever one we can find a tape of. Hmm. Well, I think I have an old VHS of the hunger in my bag. Oh, here it is. Want to watch this? Uh, I don't know. You usually uh, have to ponder on this for David at least a Bowie week beforehand. I mean, uh, do you have uh, a better selection? Well, interloper, since you already have it handy, I guess we can watch it. Are you prepared to be Pontifex of Presentment? Pointy who or the what now? It means the person who picked the movie. Oh, yeah, I guess. What do I need to do? I mean, well, you've already provided the sacred scroll. He means the VHS. Are you prepared to summarize the film? Sure. David Bowie is a vampire. Sexy vampire shenanigans ensue. Uh, yeah, we're <laughs> we're going to need a little more than that. <laughs> nah, I'll fill in the gaps as we go along. Fine, but you have to bring your own fez. Will a mysterious cloak do? I already lined the hood with foil. I like this one. She can stay. Within the depths of the strip mall of the damned, this is the TPD shopping plaza, guys. Lies the decrepit video store long since shuttered. Well, that part's true. Just read the script, please. Past the dusty shelves, empty save for spiders spinning their patient webs and weirdos spinning their crazy conspiracy theories. Beyond the ancient batwing doors, guarding the sepulchre where once were hidden the perverse and heretical, aka the old porno section, a secret society assembles. You're only secret because you never go outside. Stick to the script! To scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and disillusion. We'll see about that. Draw closer, dear listener. I don't think anyone's actually listening to this. Let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge. <clears throat> crazy rantings of the Cinemania Society. <laughs> Y'all take yourselves way too seriously. Where's that paper? Oh, yeah. All right. Welcome, brethren and sister. Wait, is it a sister and something for catching rainwater? Just read what's on the goddamn paper! Ugh, fine. Welcome, brethren and cistern, to this conclave of the Cinemania Society. Please be seated, lords. And welcome to our listeners, if you exist, to whom I will now issue this warning. We, the disciples of the Cinemania Society, have studied the mysteries of... No, I'm not reading this. Listen. We're going to use salty language. A lot of it. We're also going to talk about things that aren't for kids. If you can't handle any of that for some reason, or if you are a kid yourself, and seriously, where the fuck are your parents? How'd you get a hold of this podcast if you're a kid? Anyways, you're probably better off listening to a different podcast. Got it? Okay. Let's see who's here. I'm guessing you don't want to call me Doña Esperanza Servando Cortina Zamora de la Rosa de Ruiz Bravo all the time. Well, we can't just call you Hope. Why not? It doesn't fit with our aesthetic. It's not very ominous, is it? And what aesthetic is that, exactly? I am 
Sinquisitor Ethan, keeper of the lenses. I don't see any lenses. What the fuck is a Sinquisitor? Profligator Daniel, possessor of the word. How do you possess the word? Scrutinizer Zachariah here, guardian of the door. Oh yeah, you're doing a real good job with that door, buddy. Hey! Repositor Andre, voice from the outer world. Does that mean he's literally phoning it in? <laughs> Professor Andrea, scholar of San Francisco. Token girl, got it. Verifier Andy, master illuminator. Andre, Andrea, and Andy. No way that's gonna get confusing. And I am- Shut up. I have, rather, had a bookstore. So how about keeper of the books? And you can call me Auntie Hope. That's what the kids call me when I teach my dark arts and crafts class, which I now have to cancel. <laughs> Gotta remember to make some calls. Oh, uh, Keeper of the Books. Does that mean you can take a look at our budget? Listen, I'm gonna need some men. Keeper of the Books, not Bookkeeper. <laughs> What's the difference? Oh, it's the difference between working in a zoo and just having an elephant in your lounge that you don't talk about. I'm, uh, Auntie Hope, Keeper of the Books. I will be serving as a, what you call it again? Pontifex of Presentment. Right. Pontifex of presentment for tonight's movie. Subject of scrutiny. Sorry, sorry. Subject of scrutiny, The Hunger, a film from 1983 directed by Tony Scott, who went on to create the kinds of things you think of when someone says they had a sack of cocaine and a movie camera and made magic with hookers. Scrutinizer Zachariah will act as master castigator for this conclave. Scrutinizer Zachariah, present the charges. All right. Number one. Belief that chain smoking is a substitute for personality. Two, not letting David fucking Bowie do a theme tune. Three, abuse of a random underbridge roller disco flash dancing dude. Uh, massive overuse of moody lighting. C, massive overuse of flappy gauze drapes. Item six, Extending the suspension of disbelief that that many doves can be in a one room, one speck of bird shit, describing your makeup effects as illusions, inspiring a generation to wear round sunglasses at night, <coughs> guilty, only David Bowie can do that, and turning Susan Sarandon into the most iconic bisexual since Susan Sarandon in Rocky Horror Picture Show or even Susan Sarandon and Thelma and Louise. Serious trigger warnings. Blood, sexual content, violence, like a lot of all of those. Thank you, Scrutinizer Zachariah. To read the first section of our summary of The Hunger, Sinquisitor Ethan. Okay, The Hunger. We open on a dimly lit scene. Robert Smith of The Cure is dancing behind a wire fence. What? And the very first thing everybody surely must be thinking is, where's Bela Lugosi? 
you know, we all totally want to see him alive and kicking in a vampire movie, and gosh, I sure hope he is alive. <laughs> that guy isn't Robert Smith. The band isn't The Cure. It's someone even cooler. That's Peter fucking Murphy, and the band is fucking Bauhaus. Robert Smith had been more commercially popular, but he was the Kirkland signature to Peter Murphy. Couple fun notes about Peter Murphy. Murphy was also notably the original casting choice for Fletcher Christian in Tony Scott's big brother, Ridley Scott's 1984 film, The Bounty. This means that the brother Scotts have recognized the majesty of the godfather of goth. Unfortunately for the world, however, Peter Murphy lost out to Mel Gibson, who ended up playing Mr. Christian opposite Anthony Hopkins as Captain Bly. <sighs> Such a shame. Oh yeah, Neil Gaiman confirms that Murphy was the original model for Dream, the lead character in its landmark comic, Sandman. Now, completely badass, awesome series on Netflix. Seriously, if you haven't seen it, do you see it? Anyhow, you were saying? Um, wow. Okay, so so Peter Murphy, I take yeah. it back. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Bela Lugosi dead by Bauhaus. Blair's in the background making sure we know damned well that someone here is undead, undead, undead. The scene pulls out to reveal a warehouse party that looks like someone cleared out the 80s-themed section of a Halloween store and threw everything into a horde of early 80s music video background dancers. In the most unrealistic scene we're going to have in this movie, people are dancing excitedly to Bauhaus. <laughs> <laughs> this is pre-Spirit's Halloween store, by the way. Pre-Spirit. Uh, we see the dancers reflected in some very cool sunglasses that are gradually revealed to be worn by David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve. So we know they're sexy and awesome because they're wearing their sunglasses at night, indoors, while smoking. Now, they're already smoking, and now they're also smoking while smoking, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Bowie and Deneuve are here looking hungry, and they've come for takeout and that's what they do. They pick up a couple they like out of all the young dudes. Would you say that they are hungry like the wolf? Oh. Uh, 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 uh. Oh. <laughs> oh, no, no. We're, we're not even getting close to the whole neuromantics and Duran Duran simple <laughs> stuff yet. We're deep in the early, early 80s now. All right, all right, okay. Okay, so we cut to their dark, chic, very 80s apartment straight out of Miami Vice because they're dark, chic very 80s swingers they've each brought home their conquests who proceed to dance in front of an old school projector because this will be one of those artsy high class orgies the hosts divide and conquer bowie luring his lady friend into the kitchen by seductively tapping the empty ice bucket no ice he says in that sexy way which makes you think he wants your cubes honestly bowie can do just about anything seductively Hot and heavy makeout sessions begin, but they consist mostly of a sort of angry licking um, until Bowie and Deneuve pull out their tiny necklace daggers, trademark, and slice open some necks. This is modern love, I guess. The scene cuts back and forth between vampires and a video feed of two monkeys in a cage. They never say the word vampire, but if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and drinks the blood of its victims like a duck, then sounds like you got yourself a duckula. God. As... As the vampires feed on their victims, one monkey goes absolutely ape shit and eats the other. Maybe this is Tony Scott. It's a monkey, a not out. an ape. Yes, that's true. And I can, if you want, can't remember, there's an easy rhyme that I can teach you to tell the difference. Monkeys have tails, apes don't. That didn't rhyme. That doesn't rhyme, Dave. <laughs> that's why you can remember it. <laughs> 
anyway, maybe this is Tony Scott making a point about some, something, something monkeys? Fuck, I don't know. I mean, everybody was on cocaine. It was the early 80s. Jesus Christ. After their dinner, <laughs> Bowie and Deneuve get in the shower to wash off all their sins and promise each other forever. It's only forever. Not long at all. Uh, didn't we have an agreement that you wouldn't sing? Oh, God. <laughs> so there's four of them. Uh, when they're all making out, does that technically make it an orgy? Because I, I would think that would be like, you know, a two couple thing. How many people do you need before it's technically an orgy? And they divided and conquered. Two were in the kitchen and two were in the yeah, living room. So yeah. it wasn't. I, Isn't that just a swap? I would say by the technical yeah. definition, this is not an orgy. Yeah. I thought an orgy was five or more. Five or more. I, I thought I think, it was four or more. I don't know. Should we consult Wikipedia? I don't know. We need we need like uh, I think it would have to be an odd number. It's technically what makes it's it not orgy. really an orgy unless there's one person on their own in the corner feeling guilty and unable to really take part <laughs> and just wondering what the hell they're doing here. <laughs> you seem to be speaking well, that certainly wouldn't experience. be very ordinary. They know exactly what they're doing. Yeah, I was right. I was right. According to orgy etiquette, you need four or more people. Four or more. Okay. There you go. Where do you All find right. this etiquette? Is there a book? <laughs> do you write to Dear Prudence? <laughs> uh, it just makes me think of that bit from Key and Peel. Just pop, 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 man. <laughs> wow, I really regret bringing that up. Forever? Eternal youth? By drinking the blood of the young? I see, I see. I just need to, um, attend to something over here. Did someone hear something? Uh, someone better check on the old ball sack. It might break a hip or something. Well, volunteer, thank you for your service. Uh, all right. Hey, BM, are you down here? Told you not to go wandering off. There is some bad shit stored away under this place. Cool. Indeed! Wait, what? <laughs> hey, stop that! What? What is that? A tiny knife? Behold! Dude, seriously? <laughs> I step you! I step you again! <laughs> Dude, I'm, I'm standing over here. Look, this is just embarrassing for both of us. You know you're attacking a mop, right? Wait, wait, what? Seriously wearing those stupid round sunglasses down here? What is that, black nail polish? What is wrong with you? Oh, well, I was going for a look, you see, and I thought it was quite fetching. Well, while you're down here, can you just fetch some snacks, like pickles or kumquats or something? All right. Jesus, what a night. Oh, confound it all. I thought I looked quite the funky, fresh night stalker. Hey, guys. You know, this movie really kind of kicked off the whole 80s goth vampire look, didn't it? Goth really started uh, as a post-punk movement. Uh, it was tracked down by people who were really into bands like uh, the Velvet Underground and Joy Division which really got their goth sound and the whole style of goth really came one the first bound bands like Bauhaus and uh Susie and the Banshees and the Cure got started 
you have a lot of people taking their styles from Susie Sue and David Bowie and then going back into more of a Victorian Elizabethan uh, style as opposed to like the more dark kind of punky Sid Vicious uh, look. But then you get, you know, Robert Smith and people taking looks from Bella Lugosi and, uh, you know, the Adams family and Betty Page and uh, one of my favorite guys is this keyboardist um, called Johnny Slut, who, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, and it all really started in this club, uh, which had a goth night that was called the Bat Cave in uh, Soho in the early 80s, which literally had the Halloween rubber bats hanging from the ceiling. And, you know, I was, no, I was just going to ask you, isn't uh, yeah. like sort of the one of the big hallmarks of the goth subculture is you might say like alternative sexuality and alternative relationships? Yeah, you do get that. You see, there's there's this whole thing uh, in goth where you're kind of viewing yourself as the monster who is ostracized, but, you know, is still sexually alluring, which is why you get all these people even to this day saying, I just want, you know, the big titty goth girl. They don't understand really what they're going to get into, which is like, you know, a lot of very fetishy, kinky, you know, they're going to wind up finding themselves handcuffed to something and wondering why the hell that she's putting on a strap on. Speaking yeah. of goths, I just want to do a shout out to Nick the goth from Trash Film Orgy. If you're listening, <laughs> uh, we're thinking about you there, buddy. Thanks for running the spanking booth all those years. <laughs> that was those were good times but um going back to uh fashion there's general influences of goth you always have had this sort of horror film uh goth crossover and that goes back to places like the bat cave and you know taking from uh early edgar Allan poe and that feeling of moroseness and the acceptance that everything is sort of, you know, in decline, that things fall apart. Uh, even if the center holds, things still fall apart. There's so you're, that... you're saying they're basically bat hippies? <laughs> <laughs> in a way, without that happiness to it. Um, goth is also interesting as a subculture and that it has no like particular one drug that is the defining drug for that uh, subculture. Like Except maybe cigarettes. Uh, yeah. Heroin. Cl cloves. cigarettes. Up until this point as well, the vampire movie was played out. I mean, all through the 70s, it mm -hmm. was all just cheesier and cheesier vampire movies, mostly either exploitation or set in Victorian times or whatever. And then this you have the, the goth movement coming in and suddenly it's a perfect match. Goths plus vampires. It yeah. works. And yeah, I mean, the preceding this was all the Hammer Films stuff where they were kind of, you know, beating the, the Dracula story. To yeah, death. the son of the son of Dracula. Yeah. And also at this time, you also have authors like uh, Anne Rice started. I mm -hmm. believe she wrote Interview with a Vampire in the or mid 1970s. Yeah, it was, well, it was really some new life, as it were, into the vampire. It was really universe. time for a new look at vampires. And definitely this movie said, hang on, we've got the goths. We've got the idea of the vampire film, which needs revitalization, brings them all together. Mm -hmm. And it's a match made in heaven.
Uh, cut to a lab run by Susan Saranwrap's character, Dr. Sarah Roberts, who is the one doing weird things involving provoking monkeys, and she doesn't know what the fuck happened. Maybe they just don't like her brand of off-the-cuff observational comedy. Uh, Dr. Roberts is doing research into Brigeria and slowing the aging process. And if you want to have a really nightmarish time on Google, just Google Progeria and go to Google Images and you will see some shit you will never, ever, ever forget. Um, they do show us some pictures and of she mispronounces it. She says Progeria. Like, you would think that Tony Scott would stop her and say, it's pronounced Progeria. Uh, well, maybe he thought it sounded more educated that way. Listen, out. when it's Susan Sarandon, she can say whatever the hell she wants, and you just have to go with it. That's the oh. stature of this woman. Uh, anyway, so she's doing research into progeria, slowing the aging process, and Bowie discovers this, watching her being interviewed on TV by the world's most bland and disinterested chat show host. Bowie's TV time in the now slightly less dimly lit apartment is interrupted by a small androgynous tween with a Polaroid camera, whom we learn is named Alice, who is here for her violin lesson. And seriously, fucking boomer parents let their kids go goddamned anywhere in the 80s. No, <laughs> no wonder there had to be so many PSAs in the 80s teaching kids about stranger danger, because I mean, these guys are literally people eating swinger couple, and this kid just goes over <laughs> to learn violin from them. No questions there. But they seem like such a nice guy. I mean, it's just across the street. It's not that far. Her parents can probably see her through the window. Yeah, yeah, she's fine. Yeah, the, yeah, totally. No, no worries at all. Um, anyway, so, like, the Anyway, Bowie, Deneuve, and the kid Wonder arrange into a classical trio in front of a large bay window with copious amounts of gauzy curtains waving around. Well, I suppose if you're going to play a violin for David Bowie in the 80s, you can be damn sure there will be gauzy drapes everywhere. Naturally, and Bowie this is plays. not the last we're going to see of those gauzy drapes. They are fucking everywhere for the rest of this film. Oh, yeah. yeah. Naturally, Bowie plays the cello, the sexiest of all instruments, except for the French horn. While Deneuve plays the piano, and we see flashbacks of them playing the same instruments in 18th century France, or possibly England. Uh, one way or the other, we're pretty sure it's the 18th century, because suddenly, for some reason, Bowie and Deneuve are wearing clothing that roughly approximates the 18th century, and we see Bowie has a little ponytail. Oh, well, if he has a ponytail, it must be a different decade. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, that must have been before they got good at playing, you know, when they were absolute beginners. The flashbacks either take place in the distant past or a little later on in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's he's playing the cello. There's always room for cello. Well, you know, he was going to start running up that hill. One time when I was in college, I was walking past one of the music buildings and I heard someone practicing their cello. And it was just so beautiful and so sexy sounding. And I wanted to go up and see who it was. And I didn't have the courage. So even now, like um, like 15, almost 20 years later, I still think of that. Like, what if I'd gone up and seen who was playing this cello? Who was playing this super sexy instrument? It's still, like, it lives rent-free in my mind. Probably just some random person for whom God made up for lack of chin by giving them extra Adam's apple. Hey, you want to <laughs> hear me play my cello? Hey, come on up here. I'm going to fiddle on this thing for you. <laughs> Or even worse. Or maybe a really sexy woman like Catherine Deneuve. I don't know. Maybe she plays the cello too. I wish I'd gone up and seen who was playing that cello. Hold on. Hold on. Mm -hmm. I just remembered, speaking of Susan Sarand, wasn't she also in The Witches of Eastwick? And didn't she yeah, play, I think and she didn't, was. And didn't she play a cello in that? And there was the whole scene of him, like, you know, spreading her legs and 
rolling up her skirt and you think he's going to do something to her and he puts the cello in <laughs> between her legs. I don't know if it was her, but that was an awesome scene. <clears throat> all right, let's uh, come bringing it all back in to Susan Sarandon's totally legit monkey lab. We see Sarandon's co-worker, whom I shall call Dr. Snoop L. Jackson, because he's just so laid back and cool like most scientists, explaining that there is a connection between a person's blood type and how much they sleep, which in turn affects how quickly you age. Basically, when you stop sleeping, you die. And I can confirm this. That's a real thing. If you do stop sleeping, you do eventually die. And medical science basically considers anything more than 72 hours without sleep to be uh, pretty dangerous, medically speaking. Um, and anyway. doesn't the Geneva Convention consider that to be torture? Um, yeah, yeah. Sleep deprivation is considered to be a method of torture for, for real. Sadly, the Geneva Convention never did apply to monkeys. <laughs> basically when you stop sleeping you die but right before you die you turn into scary monsters and super creeps which we later learn is what caused the monkey to go off the deep end and eat his buddy uh, through the medium of flashbacks we get the idea that our two hungry hungry hipsters have been doing this for a long time however Bowie confronts Deneuve and actually we learn later that they are named John and Miriam but honestly who cares and accuses her of wanting Alice to be next we don't yet know next what, but it's clear that Bowie obviously feels pretty betrayed. And he also mentions not sleeping lately. It's confusing. He seems like he's surprised that he's not going to live forever, but then he asks Miriam how long the others took, so obviously we know something was up. Miriam just wants to enjoy the time they have, those golden years. Wop, wop, wop. Bowie puts on his best going outside clothes because some people actually can pull off a fedora and trench coat combo and heads down to Sarandon's lab, which is conveniently within walking distance of his apartment. He Starting looks like to... Dick Tracy in this bit. <laughs> he he kind of does, but oddly, yes, he's one of those few people who can pull off the trench coat and fedora combo without looking like, uh, you know, a libertarian about to go into a rant about why the age of consent should be lowered just before he shows you his collection of gas station katanas. I think that he could even get away with saying milady in that outfit. <laughs> I was just going to say no one. Like I'm going to tell you as a as a as a woman no one can get away with saying milady. No one. unless it's David Bowie. No, not even David Bowie. Uh, oh, also, just a quick note, I want to shout out to Robert Evans for giving me that bit, which I totally ripped off from him, so thank you, Robert. <laughs> anyway, so um, he tries While to explain... While you were enjoying to... my Berlin period, I was studying the blade. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> he tries to explain to her that he's starting to age rapidly, but she was... She has a meeting to get to right now, and he gets extra creepy and screams, I am a young man, a young man, which is totally a thing that young men do. Totally stable young men, mentally stable. Screaming <laughs> about your sanity or something we've seen again and again in these movies is a great way to prove your sanity. Prove the point that you are completely sane, indeed. Worked for okay, Sam so Neill. <laughs> worked for Sam Neill, it worked for Alan Bates. It, yeah, it's, it's a recurring theme. But, okay, so Sarandon um, gently escorts Bowie to a waiting room, promises to be back in 15 minutes, and promptly alerts security as soon as she's out of sight, which is not a bad idea, actually. <laughs> Sarandon is in 
her obviously not 15 minute long meeting and gets down to some serious monkey business. She checks a video feed of the crazy ass monkey that uh, shows that after he gets done eating his buddy, he begins to age super rapidly to the point that he decomposes in a matter of minutes. Like this is actually a, 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 quite an enjoyable piece of stop motion animation that they do here and probably ate up a good chunk of the film's budget. You but, have a very different definition of enjoyable than I do. Well, it's at least reminiscent of the rapid decomposition scene in Evil Dead, which yeah. they did on a whole lot less budget. But anyway, Ashes to Ashes indeed, which this does not bode well. Uh, this is uh, something I would say is more even than foreshadowing, probably close to more like five shadowing. Uh, <laughs> Maybe even six shadowing. Dun, dun, dun. Two hours later, Bowie finally gives up waiting and then sees Sarandon in the stairwell on his way out. She had dismissed him as a crackpot. <laughs> Who wouldn't? <laughs> but she can see that he has obviously aged in the two hours since she saw him last, transforming completely into old Bowie. Um, which is it's actually a pretty cool little sequence of him waiting and aging as he waits. And that nobody in the waiting room remarks on whatsoever. Look, if I was sitting next to a dude and he aged that fucking rapidly while I was waiting, I would probably be a little disconcerted and notify the medical people right away to do something. But... <laughs> You know, it's the 80s. No one paid attention to anything. They were all just so high, they didn't care. Everybody was too self-absorbed. And if you're willing to willingly enter a waiting room in a crazy monkey clinic, you got to expect some weird shit. True. <laughs> uh, yeah. Granted, everyone was just staring at their phones, right? Now Sarandon is thoroughly intrigued, and she tries to apologize and get him to stay, but he is pissed off and wants nothing more to do with her. He yells at her with all of the old man rage and spittle he can muster before storming out. Maybe he's just afraid of Americans. <laughs> <laughs> On his way home, Old Bowie impotently attacks a solar roller disco enthusiast trying to have a perfectly innocent flash dance moment under a bridge, but his tiny necklace dagger, trademark, misses its mark. Old Bowie just doesn't have the gumption to take down an 80s roller skating bridge person anymore, and that's just sad. It's hard going through ch ch ch, -ch changes That, no, you're on notice. You're Turn on notice. Turn and face the strange. Nope, nope, nope. We're not, we're not doing this. We're not doing this. All right. Dejected and still possessed by the hunger, he comes home. No one knows where Deneuve is, but old Bowie is home alone until Alice comes by. Well, well, maybe just a little snack, right? Maybe just a smidge of a young American to take the edge off. Who's ready for snacks? Ooh, snacks. Oh, all right. Kumquats? Kumquats. Pickled kumquats. What the fuck? Hey. But I, I just need someone to help me with the... Uh, Biscuits, yes, the heavy, heavy biscuits. What are you talking about? Seriously, this guy? I think I pulled a ligament, you see. So if one of you would be so good as to lend a hand. Pulled more than a ligament. Fine, fine, anything to get this over with. Come on. Is this even the way to the biscuit vault? This is the way to death. I'm sorry, are you trying to do something to me? Well, you know, this reminds me. Wasn't there a serial killer who used to pretend to have a broken arm and get people to help him carry stuff? Yes, Ted Bundy, you fool! Yes. 
Yes, yes, that's that's right. Hey, you reminded me of something. Thank you. Uh, <coughs> don't forget the biscuits. We'll see you in a few moments. Oh, Bundy! just thought of something. Uh, this uh, whole thing with Bowie trying to stalk and kill people has a total serial killer vibe. And like, Deneuve and Bowie are shown as being the ultimate swinger serial killer couple, which actually sounds kind of phony, right? Well, actually, as it turns out, there was a real serial killer swinging couple. Um, you guys ever heard of, of Gerald and Charlene Gallego? I think it's probably Gallego. Um, I have not. Yeah, Gallego. No, don't think so. I, I'm yeah. sure it's, it's pronounced Gallego, but because, uh, you know, it was Sacramento in the set, late 70s, people... Anglicized, probably... yeah. No, I get yeah. it. I get it. I get yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to say Gallego because I think that's mm. how he said it. Um, but honestly, I, get, I don't give a fuck how this guy said it because he was a serial mm. killer and he was an asshole. But I'll say Gallego. Because how people knew him. Anyway. Serial... Um, a serial killing couple that swings in the 1970s. Why am I not surprised? Well, no, no, it's actually quite rare um, because even up, even back then, this because this was the heyday of serial killers, like right. Everybody was focused on it after the Zodiac killer. I mean, there were serial killers who preceded them, but the 60s and 70s were pretty heavy. You know, in there were a lot of serial killers in operation, and there are not that many swinger couples. And this it made international press. So, uh, one of the things mm. about Gerald and Charlene Gallego was that they would kidnap young women and as sex slaves and then abuse them and then murder them. And this was going on between 1978 and 1980. And in fact, one of the places where they picked up victims was at the sale in on Jefferson Boulevard uh, that I live like maybe a half a mile away from at best. Like, oh, I mean, God. I passed by it when we were moving into the place where I live. My dad points it out. He's like, hey, that's a sale in. I said, yeah. And he said, yeah, do you know that that's where a serial killer couple used to hunt? I was like, what? <laughs> so, um, I yeah. No, I mean, if you that. give your business such a terrible pun of a name as the sale in, you're kind of asking for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, there was another thing that happened too, which I think this may have, I think, I think the Gallegos may have been, and uh, one of the other funny things about, about, uh, uh, Gerald Gallego, which honestly, this guy really should have just been a goth instead of a murderer because, um, you know, he was married seven times, including twice to the same woman. Um, and wow. then uh, married. Always a good sign of a stable relationship. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, Char she didn't Charlene, learn her lesson at all, did she? Well, Charlene, his, his partner in crime, was actually from Stockton. <laughs> oh, it, it all makes sense now. Yeah. Yeah. But um, anyway, he was still married to a previous wife when he married Charlene. So this guy is, is a, um, he just like, he was a. Or bigamist. Uh, bigamist, bigger than me at least. Right. <laughs> <laughs> idiot, that's the word, idiot. Yeah, yeah. idiot. Um, but he had been arrested 23 times um, and uh, had been convicted of robbery. That's a prime murder. number. Yeah, he was he was uh, uh, he had served prison time, had been arrested 23 times. But yeah, um, he is known. They are known for uh, for kidnapping, usually like two girls at a time. There were um, uh, about 10 victims when they were captured. 
Oh man! Uh, finally got captured. But yeah, they they were all over Sacramento in the late seventies and early eighties. And one of the other notable serial killers of the era was uh, Richard Chase, also known as the Vampire of Sacramento, because he was known for drinking his victims' blood and cannibalizing them. Oh, um, he lived over. God, Sacramento was pretty shitty in the seventies and eighties, wasn't it? No, no, no. I'll explain why that was the case. But I think, I think, I don't know. But I was. Did it really change. get any better? <laughs> well, I was hoping we would get an and we would get an interview with uh, Whitley Strieber for this, but we didn't. Um, I wanted to ask him specifically: Were these people who were inspiring you to write this novel that got adapted into this movie? Because I mean, these people were op- like like Richard Chase, the Vampire of Sacramento, and um, the Gallego swinger serial killers were operating around the same time, like between 1977 and 1980. So Richard Chase killed people, six people between 77 and 78. And then um, right after that were the Gallegos doing their things where they got 10 people. Um, the sad thing about Richard Chase, though, is he was a very, very sick person. Like it wasn't, he wasn't just like a, a sociopath who, you know, got off on murdering people like the Gallegos did. This was somebody who was like seriously like a schizophrenic, like had, uh, yes. and then got fixated on on blood and like uh like nicholas like nicholas cage's character in uh that one vampire movie yes the great nicholas cage vampire film con air (laughs) you hadn't said vampire yet i was just (laughs) but But, uh, yeah wasn't there that nicholas cage film where he thinks he's a vampire vampire's kiss yes the vampire's kiss but yeah, no, sad, sadly, like Richard Chase is a very sick person. But to, 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 to what Hope was saying, though, um, about like Sacramento being a terrible place, any city was a terrible place in that time. And this is why. Has anybody heard of lead crime theory? Yes, no. I've oh, heard yeah, of that. The lead paint. Yeah. No, it wasn't lead paint. It was tetraethyl lead as a gasoline additive. Mm-hmm. Oh, this was added oh, in the right. 1920s. Yeah. And yeah. one of the things, and I have to say, you know, the, this was actually Mother Jones magazine um, uh, who broke this story. Uh, Kevin Drum, who is, uh, did just a groundbreaking piece of research journalism in 2013 when he did a massive comparison of violent crime rates with lead emissions. And he was found that they were that rates of violent crime rose as lead vapor air pollution rose with about a 20 year lead time. So as people were increasingly exposed to lead 20 years later, violent crime rates were uh, were equivalently higher. I was going to say, because like in the same area, too, at the same time, you had the trailside killers down in like Mm -hmm. the Santa Cruz Mountains, too, who were operating. Yeah, yeah there's it's, a, there's it's a not all bad of... news, though. I mean, those car engines were running sweet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is insane. Who let them put lead in gasoline to begin with? Like, what was the point? Why did they even want it in there? Oh, there's oh. a whole thing about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it, caused, was, uh... it caused less efficient engines to be able to run better, basically. So they could use shittier gasoline and add this as an additive so that it wouldn't cause engine knock. So it was all an industry thing. Engines weren't, didn't have to be made with as much precision so that, you know, the car industry could half-ass building the engines and the, the oil industry didn't have to refine their oil as intensely. They could just use shitty oil and shitty engines and add this anti-knock compound of tetraethyl lead and everybody could get around just fine. But what was really fascinating about the research that I was trying to get to is the fact that 
not only were they able to show that the violent crime rose with exposure to lead, but after leaded gasoline was abolished in a given country, violent crime rates consequently lowered. And it was, it was shown not just from the macro level, where you could look at it, the crime rate nationally, but you could take it all the way down from the, from, from the national to the state, to the county, to the city, and even to the neighborhood level where they Damn. saw them. Yeah, and it was shown um, from country to country, and, it, and, and the, the, the graphs were almost exactly the same um, based on when a given country abolished leaded gasoline. So it was really, really phenomenal reporting. Um, so shout out to Mother Jones magazine. And it's, it's, it's interesting. So if you're into that shit, you should read about it. Man, we are just like a regular connections here. I mean, going from the hunger to goth to vampires to serial killers to engine knock to climate change to the birth of the universe. We yeah, are now let's sm- just see if we can get James Burke out here, huh? <laughs> yeah, we are some smart motherfuckers. We have no boundaries. We are infinite. And so, you and gosh. you hope just say we just review movies. This is what we do. This is how we stop Cinemania. Well, this is also something where we can say, Andre, you guys uh, in Gen Z have it a lot better than we had it because you didn't have to grow up with all the lead contamination. Yeah, um, we kind of have that as a bit of a meme about your generation and the previous generation having bad takes on the Internet. We just comment lead poisoning and kind of leave it at that. (laughs) Well, uh, okay. Your prize is you get to live. That's also your punishment. All right, that was enough of a snack break, guys. Everybody got their drinks topped off? All right, let's bring it back in. Completely chill with the weird old guy hungrily eyeing her, Alice asks if he is John's father while she's just sort of wandering around the place looking at things and taking the occasional Polaroid. She had planned to just leave a note for Miriam, but she has her violin with her and tells old Bowie about a piece she's been working on. He asks her to play for him and she obliges because this is the 80s and stranger danger isn't a thing yet, at least for big city latchkey kids. So she thinks nothing of (laughs) throwback, throwback. So she thinks nothing of hanging out alone in an adult's apartment with another adult she doesn't know. Absolutely can confirm. That was a thing that happened in the early 80s. They had to run all those PSAs back when I was a kid about like, this is why you don't go with strangers and do stuff. Otherwise, you end up in this movie, I guess. (laughs) Watch out, there could be vampires. Uh, Yet more allegory from this film. Oh, yeah. As Alice plays, old Bowie is overcome with the hunger. He busts out his tiny necklace dagger, TM, and attacks Alice from behind. Somehow, Alice is still wearing her Polaroid camera around her neck while playing violin, and she snaps a picture on her way down. The Polaroid photo falls dramatically to the floor, while old Bowie feeds on Alice in the background. All she ever wanted was to hang around while she was waiting for the man. Later, Miriam returns home and old Bowie confronts her. It's clear that he hasn't got long left. You said forever, he repeats with obvious betrayal in his voice. They have flashbacks to 18th century France, presumably we're meant to think that this is where they met, but this time, Old Bowie chose to look back in anger. 
he confronts his lover in all his wrinkly glory and demands, Kiss me! Kiss Miriam me! Kiss <laughs> me! Brother Methuselah, you need to go sit down and cool off. He's getting a little antsy over there. Miriam pushes through her obvious revulsion and obliges. Whether this was Miriam's disgust for John or genuine disgust on the part of Deneau for having to make skin contact with those heavy prosthetics, uh, I mean, makeup illusions is anyone's guess. Miriam finally notices the body-sized blood stain on the floor, which she had previously overlooked. I she guess she wasn't should... hungry? No, uh, well, maybe. <laughs> She shouldn't I mean, have you looked. Catch people licking gravy up off the floor, right? I mean, if you see a giant pool of gravy on the floor, it's not like you're just gonna, you know, unless you're really starving. But anyway, <laughs> go ahead. Now I'm just picturing that, and that's burned into my brain forever. She shouldn't have looked at the carpet. He's done something awful on it. She Did sees the pole. Nose with a rolled-up newspaper. Yeah, right. <laughs> she sees the Polaroid in the grizzly puddle that used to be a tween, and makes the connection with Alice. She turns to John and asks, slash accuses him, What did you do? John begs her, Give me a little longer, and collapses. Miriam says she can't, so John begs instead for death, and Miriam replies again, I can't. He's really making her feel under pressure. Actually, quick side note. Um, in the book, the reason why she's so pissed off about this is because uh, Alice was supposed to have been Bowie's replacement. She knew this was coming, and they were, much as I hate to use this term in the charged times in which we live, but this would have been a completely accurate term given what they were doing, grooming of Alice. Mm. Miriam carries Alice's body to the incinerator in the basement, and oh yeah, it turns uh, out they have a massive human body-sized incinerator right there in the basement, because of course they do. <laughs> to be fair, on Gen Z in the before times, these were fairly common in older buildings. They are for burning trash, and for heating the building in the times when nobody gave a fuck about carbon footprints. Yeah, no, that's not a joke. They used to heat the building by burning garbage. And we wonder why now suddenly the whole planet is on fire. Like, isn't that also just carbon monoxide poisoning too? Oh yeah, no, I mean, like, like we're still not that far removed from the uh, from the pea soup fog days of jolly old London when uh, they burned Holy rocks shit. to heat their homes and, and people died from all the sulfuric acid that the fog would turn into from all the coal emissions from everybody's house. Oh my and God. so, you know, even in the late 70s, early 80s, they still had incinerators and in buildings where they would burn trash. You know, you just, you had a, sh a shoot in your apartment, you'd dump all the shit down the chute and they would just go to the incinerator and burn, 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 burn. Anyway, somehow no one has noticed the copious amount of bodies that this couple carries into their basement. By the time Miriam returns, old Bowie is completely decrepit, so she cradles him in her arms and carries him away. Just picks him up like a cloth sack full of sexy boomerangs. He tries to say something about it, and she's all like, Shh, John, I'm only dancing. <laughs> Next, we cut to what is presumably an attic. Miriam has somberly carted a dying ancient rock god up an entire building from basement to attic. And that's real dedication to the bit right there. 
up in the dark, sinister rafters, there is a circle of light shining in from the ceiling and attracting doves, because higher-end properties don't allow pigeons. They presumably shit everywhere. I don't think know a single speck of dove shit anywhere in this attic. I mean, and you have to imagine yeah, like, and, you know, <laughs> the film crew, like, they had to be just swimming in this stuff. Oh, art, yeah. Art department. All right, dove took a dump. Go clean it. Yep, yep. <sighs> Not gonna be grips. Not gonna be grip department. Not this no, time. No, no, it's not GE. That's all our department, man. That's <laughs> <laughs> poor bastards. Denov parts the sea of doves. We can only assume that the lingering shadows disguise a reeking inch deep carpet of guano, and lays old Bowie in the circle of light, surrounded by, yes, more gauzy curtains. She then puts him into a cheap wooden coffin, and it turns out that there are a lot of coffins stacked around the room. Now, from the flashbacks, we know that they didn't always live here. So at some point, they were moving house, and one wonders if Bowie made mention of the large collection of ancient funerary caskets that Miriam was bringing along. It's not like chucking an old end table in the attic because you'll find a spot for it later. <laughs> weird that she keeps her coffins in an attic instead of down in the underground well you got to keep them somewhere you know yeah i mean might as well again that's where, that's where kids store their old stuff toys when they're done with them is in the attic right Ugh. whoever is interred in these coffins miriam seems to have uh, an emotional uh, he said turd. nice let's go <laughs> whenever or whoever whenever Whoever is interred in these coffins, <laughs> Miriam seems to have an emotional connection to them. She strokes her hands over the crumbling wooden lids and asks that they be kind to him, presumably by keeping the bastard doves away or something. She calls them my loves and speaks to them in a way that makes it obvious they aren't dead. This isn't like someone talking at a headstone, but knowing it's just symbolic, she's really talking and they really hear her a real we are the dead kind of vibe oh you know i just can't figure that out what she's doing here she says be kind to him how can they be kind to him they're all boxed up like he is too and stuff yeah. in the attic what are they gonna do use harsh language yeah <laughs> they're gonna use vicious mockery very aggressively <laughs> you have a bunch of passive aggressive vampire mummies in the attic <laughs> All they do is just talk trash for eternity. Oh, hold up. I need to towel off my drink. I made a themed cocktail just for this movie. Uh-huh. I call it a bloody old Bowie. Get it? It's got cranberry juice to give it a good bloody color. Vodka to give you that fun, lightheaded blood loss feeling. And lemonade, reminiscent of elderly incontinence. But no ice. <laughs> you have to ask for that. <laughs> Ah, it's cool. <laughs> you people are no fun. That is quality theme cocktail action. I'll be right back. That sounds good. Bring me one. Got it. Yummy, yummy vodka. I'm going to drink a lot. <laughs> Cranberry juice. Ah, mm. oh, whatever. It's just finish anyway. I got the main ingredients right here. <clears throat> Want me to see me play the cello? <gasps> the second sexiest of all instruments? Oh, I've got a French horn around here somewhere. I'm a young man. I'm a young man. Kiss me. Oh, 
I've seen this before. Did you take all your meds at once or something? How many pills did you take? Um, fall under my sexy spell. Oh, you did not just wave a gauzy carton around at me. Hey, give me that. <clears throat> ah, and don't do it again, or I'll show you a whole new way to play the French horn. Oh, no, we never had to put up with this. Oh. Guys, after this point, Bowie's basically done. He's boxed up. What do we think of him in this film? Well, uh, he's not bad. He, I he's... wish he was the David Bowie we know and love instead of a withered old skeleton more. I was going <laughs> to say that, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't have the gravitas of, of Bowie and Labyrinth. So... If you think of your film as, as like a meal, Bowie's like bacon. You don't want him as your entree. It's too much. It's overwhelming. It's overpowering. But you've got him on the side. You've got him just like accenting everything else and uh, complimenting everything else. He works great. You're saying that Bowie is the ultimate side piece? <laughs> yes. A little bit of Bowie buffet, you might say. <laughs> yes. Oh, but if you, if you look at the movies where he's been the lead, like The Man Who Fell to Earth and The Man Who Sold the World, and, well, this film... It's a lot, and they're very much sources of cinemania. But if you look I at films like remember, like Zoolander, yeah. where he was just uh, he just had a cameo, or The Prestige, where he was Nikola Tesla, he just he adds a little something. You know, he just kind of gives it some crunch and some salt, and it's he he just gives it a little something. But you don't want a whole plate of them. I get, I did uh, read in a later interview he kind of got a little bit bored with the project halfway through. <laughs> As one would do with an entire plate of bacon, right? It seems exciting, and then halfway through, you're like, I, and I think. I mean, it's a, it's the early oh, '80s. He had a lot going on. There was a lot on the horizon, and I think he kind of maybe went into this film and thought it'd be a quick job, and a, a short way into filming, maybe thought, okay, I'm kind of done with this. I think perhaps the Irish would take you to task on uh, throwing shade on an entire plate full of bacon. <laughs> I can just see Bowie going. Look, uh, the Irish have made good. some wonderful contributions to film and cuisine, haven't they? Yes, they I, certainly have. I can just see David Bowie going. Look, man, this is gig has gone on for weeks. I've already banged everybody on the set. I'm done. Come You're again? Keeping me too long. I'm just the bacon. <laughs> but I you am... could throw 15 minutes of Bowie into like any film, any show, and it would make it better, and it'd be great. But you go much beyond that, and it's just cloying and overwhelming. Yeah, I can dig it. So I think he should reserve his leading man status for music and wow. and stick to being a side piece in films. That's, not, that's my opinion. Not, so you're not fond of a BLT, a Bowie lettuce and tomato sandwich? No, that would be okay. The Bowie is nice you know, and lean, and the tomatoes, they're just so perky. <laughs> I'm not a witch, I'm your wife. You season that with a little Ziggy Stardust, you're perfect. Exactly. Star Ziggy Stardust, not Ziggy Star like slather. Not a slab of Ziggy. Dusting. Just a sprinkle of booger sugar. Exactly. Add some thin white duke over the bread and <laughs> if you want duke on your bread, that's you, dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. While all this is going on, Susan Sarandon is trying to work out who her mystery pensioner was. She remembers John's last name and looks him up in this ancient thing called a phone book. She gets the address yeah, and heads over to book. Did you get that? You actually used to be able to look up people's phone numbers in books you could find all over the city. Jeez. Like, I... 
This is what you did before you had the internet. If you're a, a private detective, you actually had a job. Now, oh, if you want to find man. somebody's phone number, you have to go pay someone. They still have them. They're still listed. You just have to go to a website and pay for it now. Jeez. A different age. Anyway, she gets the address and heads over to apologize and pay a visit to this geriatric curiosity. Miriam eyes up the doctor in a very creepy slash seductive way before telling her that John has gone to Switzerland. This is the early 80s, so that doesn't have nearly as creepy a vibe as it would now. Sarandon doesn't mind the ogle. She writes her number on a piece of paper and gives it to Denov before leaving. Is this yeah. is saying that he's gone to Switzerland, the vampire equivalent of telling a kid that their dog has gone to live on a farm up in the country? Oh, yeah. Most definitely. Yeah, uh, uh, John went to go pick up some uh, cigarettes, and he has he's not back yet. But it's been five years. He's still getting cigarettes. She obviously likes this couple of kooks. A walking New York stereotype comes up to Miriam and introduces himself as a detective investigating Alice's disappearance. Seriously, this guy is discount store Columbo. Oh, he this looks is Dan Hadaya. Dan Hadaya. He is uh, the guy who plays, uh, is it General Perez in Alien Resurrection? Nice. You see him here, he's very young, but he still has exactly that same look on his face, that same underbite, the same like intense eye bug that he gives everything. I mean, this guy is a fantastic character actor in everything he's in. Love him. Yeah. <laughs> I did like his vibe when he came in. He's just very much detective without really even introducing himself it's great he's funny like like i think this is probably the youngest i've ever seen him i don't i don't know if he was in anything before this but um oh one other note is that dan hadaya is uh connected to to at least other movies of cinemania that that classic piece of intense cinemania buckaroo bonsai he was in that next to peter weller playing gomez he looks unwashed and somewhat slightly dazed miriam invites him up the incredibly discreet maid has obviously been in because there's no blood anywhere. While talking to the detective, Miriam fiddles with the paper in her pocket and we flash to alternating scenes of Sarandon walking and a semi-truck somehow speeding down a narrow city street. Miriam clutches the paper and seems to stop the distracted Sarandon being hit by the truck. Cut back to Miriam explaining to the detective that her necklace, which conceals her tiny necklace dagger TM, is an Ankh, an ancient Egyptian symbol for everlasting life. And this is the reason why Goths have adopted the Ankh as their symbol. I'm, I am reasonably sure that it was this movie because, because of the Ankhs feature so, so prominently. When Sarandon returns to her office, she keeps having auditory hallucinations of the phone ringing, maybe because Miriam is fondling the scrap of paper with her phone number. No longer able to resist her curiosity, Sarandon returns to Miriam slash John's apartment building. Miriam gives her a glass of port, which she promptly spills on her shirt. Oh, dearie me, would you look at that? <laughs> the fairly pale colored port instantly becomes bright blood red on Sarandon's super thin white 1980s t-shirt. Back then, you paid extra for nipple revealing thinness. Miriam offers to find her a new shirt, provided they can do so in her dimly lit walk-in closet while Miriam sits back and watches. Don't we all keep fancy upholstered armchairs in our walk-in closets? You don't? No. I can't afford a walk-in closet. What do, you, what do you mean? Miriam has never heard of light bulbs, but damned if every room doesn't have an antique wing-back lurking chair. <laughs> I have one of those in my living room. Perfect. Good. All my That's furniture in the living room is all Chesterfield. 
Worth pointing out that Sarandon is wearing nothing up top but a thin t-shirt, even though she just came from work. Lab safety be damned. After Sarandon's one-woman wet t-shirt contest is over, Miriam decides to take her down to Suffragette City, and the two retire to the heavily mirrored bedroom for a hot and heavy makeout session on beds surrounded by even more gauzy curtains, perhaps the flappiest and gauziest we have seen so far. Considering all the candles, this place is an absolute death trap. Every moment here is a fire hazard. Oh, this is nothing compared to the book. They had so many scenes, so many scenes. This is just like they kind of condensed them all into one great big scene. And don't get me wrong, it's a great scene. Oh, yeah. Like, you read that book and it's just like, dang. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but... But the real, the real star of the show is the gauzy curtains. If I ever, if I, when I, once I, once I learn up on the rules for a Vampire the Masquerade, I'm a hundred percent going to have gauzy curtains in there. Anyway, Miriam is going down on Sarandon's elbow like a phlebotomist with a job to do and looks like she intends to lick Sarandon down to a nub. Eventually, they both drink some of each other's blood. <laughs> Kinky. They roll around on the bed and make love like two erotic androids from the future who don't understand human emotion, but are willing to give this thing called love a go. Uh, I, uh, I think I need more ice. Didn't you just grab some? Need more. Be right back. Calm down. Calm down. Deep, deep breaths. Think unsexy thoughts. <laughs> my proud beauty. I see you flustered with the vapors. Ew. Yep, that'll do it. Surrender to my mesmeric influences. When you squint like that, it's as if the wrinkles are trying to form a message. Fall under my spell of love. Oh god, not the little dance too. Behold my erotic Vandango. I'd call it harassment if it wasn't so deeply, deeply sad. Okay, let's just... Uh, uh, Shh, we're just gonna stick you in here. And you can stay in there until you can learn to behave yourself. wonder what all that was about. super hot scene here. Catherine Deneuve really knows how to work it. She totally owns the whole sexy seductress thing. In fact, uh, the actress actually had a huge lesbian goth following after this film. I wouldn't be surprised if Bowie did too after this. Yeah, un unfortunately, um, at the time, early in the 80s, um, with the AIDS crisis just starting, a lot of people weren't all that aware but they knew that some weird disease was like striking people suddenly who had been very healthy before and then very quickly they just wasted away uh, similar to kind of the way bowie just like 
shrivels so quickly in the film. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's almost prophetic in that way because, like, it would have still been in theaters when the AIDS crisis hit front pages everywhere. I mean, like, movies stayed in theaters for, like, a good year, year and a half sometimes. Yeah, and also uh, people were starting to hear inklings of the connection between what came to be known as AIDS and people with hemophilia, which is a bleeding disorder. So folks had an idea that blood was somehow connected to this weird disease that they were hearing about. So with the vampires and all the blood and the drinking, it all just kind of ties into that discomfort, I think, that people had at the time with this new disease that they didn't really understand. And even though, you know, it wasn't fully understood at the time, there was also the connection with the gay community. Because before it was called AIDS, it was called GRID, gay-related immune disorder. They thought only gays got it. They didn't even want to treat it because it was this dirty thing that these dirty people did. If you had it, you were just basically a pariah. They put, like, signs on the hospital room doors and people would just be ignored. Patients. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and there were some doctors studying it um, to figure out what was um, going on, which kind of reminds me of Susan Sarandon's doctor character as a scientist studying the weird condition related to blood that causes this rapid deterioration of the monkey um, that we see early on. It's a very notable scene and ultimate death as well. So the kind of connection to medical research, trying to figure out how this weird blood disease worked. Yeah, that's an interesting parallel, actually, like you were saying about them withering away, you know, like kind of like wasting away to these 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 sort of mummies. And then Hope pointing out about how how people were just basically like shut into hospital rooms and left to languish and neglect. You know, that's that's really reminiscent of the way that Catherine Deneuve's character, uh, Miriam Blaylock, would just basically once they reached the point they were no longer comfortable to be around, then she would just stuff them in a box and leave them to languish and, and neglect. You know, say she loved them, but, you know, basically just shut them away to, to, to suffer. I think bleak F, but one thing the movie does that it kind of takes that disconnect. This is all about the blood. Everything's in the blood and the homosexuality in the movie isn't a bad thing. Whereas in real life, it was. It was a very much a, a, a big scarlet letter on you. If you got this, you were probably gay. But this, the gayness has is kind of shown in a grid light. Because, you know, first it's a, it's a hetero couple who gets, who has all this. Exactly. Well, yeah, they definitely take a look at that swinger culture at the beginning, too. And they're very, they're very clearly sort of depicted as swingers and picking up their conquests and, and doing this kind of thing. You know, but the other thing... Were they swingers or was that really just dinner? <laughs> well, I think it's set up so that when you're watching it, it's if like you think they're swingers and then suddenly they whip out these little knives and then they start cutting on them. Like like you don't necessarily know what it's about when you go in to see it unless you watch the preview or something. So you go in and you sit down and you watch this movie. They don't expect that you will assume that they're vampires. We knew it's a vampire movie because it's been around for Christ at this point almost 40 years. You know, then you, you would go see a movie without knowing anything about it. And oh, oh, shit. Oh, these people are going to get down. Oh, wait a minute. You know, like, I see what's going on here. Uh, these people are serial killers. Oh, wait, no, they're not serial killers. They're vampires. Like, they, they definitely, they don't sell the vampires. Cannibals? Something? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's why I mentioned about serial killers earlier. I mean, this is very much in the in the mindset, you know, this is very much in the minds of people at the time. You know, not to, to grab your thing and run off with it, but that's that's... That's the point. People are thinking it's this. So there's there's a lot of overtones. Well, Catherine Devin was also very well known for playing murderers who were sexy but really cold. When what else is a vampire other than sexy but also really cold at the same time? 
that's a good point. You know, like a vampire uses sex to lure you in and then murders the living shit out of you. Isn't that like such an old trope about women? Like if they're sexual and if they're open with their sexuality, there must be something wrong with them. There's something else under the scene. Why would she want this? Why would she be so sexy and so overt unless she has an ulterior motive? You know, she's bisexual or she's a vampire or she's got a disease. Well, to bring it back all the way around to what you mentioned about the, the LGBT community, it occurs to me that at the time, I think the people, you know, within the subgroup within the LGBT community that suffered the most in AIDS were actually the bisexual people because they were the ones who were like being blamed for transmitting it from the gay community where it had been sequestered, you know, to the to the quote unquote straight population. And it, nobody at the time was willing to acknowledge the sexuality spectrum, even though it had been published by Alfred Kinsey fucking, you know, 30, 40 years before. Nobody wanted to acknowledge the existence. So it, it, this was the time. It went from being that dirty gay disease to being something we actually have to think about and deal with because the quote unquote normal people are getting it now. Exactly. Quote unquote, normal people are getting it now. And it's all because of those, you know, all because of those traitorous bi people. And, and I think, you know, like if I recall correctly, I've had they really felt like they couldn't be visible even after, you know, even after HIV was no longer really a stigma. It kind of drove them underground or at least according to. You know, according to people within the community who have who have said so about their opinions to me, I don't want to you know, I don't want to out anybody or name them. But the stigma, I feel like, you know, at least as I understand it, lasted with with bi people for a lot longer necessarily than it lasted with gay people. Well, I still hear that from people all the time Bi people, especially by women will be told, oh, you're just trying it out, you know, or just, you're just confused. Just or, you know, you're, or like for guys, they'll say, oh, you were really gay, but you're just dating women because, you know, that's what you thought you were supposed to do. I've heard so often that bi people are told they're confused. And it's got to be so frustrating to know yourself and then constantly have people just tell you, no, you don't actually. I know better than you. Uh, but Deneuve is quite, quite sexy in this movie, yes. <laughs> to bring it back. <laughs> yeah, to bring it back. And, you know, she she has uh, often, like, there's there's been a lot of speculation about whether she was bi or whether she was gay. Um, there's been a lot of talk um, for a lot of years. Gay for about, pay? No, about whether or not, you know, she, she has never out Oh, no. Herself. Well, like, whether she was actually gay or rather she was only just playing gay parts is oh. what I meant. Yeah, fair point. Yeah, gay for pay. Yeah. I would say that given that Deneuve has only had a couple of marriages, or is it just one? She's been married very few times. And then there was by a Hollywood long... By Hollywood standards. By Hollywood standards. And then there was a long break when they didn't know who or if at all she was dating. I think the lack of information led people to speculate that, oh, maybe she's actually you know, lesbian. That's why she's not dating men. Um, she she has definitely had a very God. God forbid you don't want a penis. There must be something wrong with you. <laughs> well, no, it's funny. She actually has had a very uh, I don't know if I'd say scandalous, um, but very provocative love life. Um, uh, at the time when she was making the hunger, she was thirty nine years old and dating a nineteen year old. Good for her. Yeah. It wouldn't have been, no one would have batted an eye had the genders been reversed, especially True. then. Yeah, nobody gives a damn if it's Leonardo DiCaprio. But, you know, when... I mean, he's only just now being called out on that. And he's, what, like 50? Yeah. And Bowie also, Bowie went back and forth on, you know, whether he identified as bisexual or not. I think he came out and then kind of went back in the closet, you know, mm -hmm. just because... It wasn't the time for him. It wasn't. He was not well received. 
Yeah. And he said in later interviews, either that he either denied it or he said he regretted it. Kind of his stance on it changed over time. Yeah, he, he came out in 1972 and right when there was a pretty strong backlash against the gay community um, as a result of HIV, he, he regretted publicly outing himself. Yeah, it was a, not an easy time to be, uh, to be a bi or a gay man in the early 80s. It was not an easy time to be anything but a cishet white male. Yeah, if you fit the Reagan definition of, uh, of what society should look like, then it was an easy time. Default American person. Yeah, apparently, I was just checking my facts. It says uh, Deneuve has, has not had a public relationship since she broke up with her most recent guy in 1991. Um, it's, uh, Which was actually 30 years ago. 30 years ago. old right now. Yeah, 30 years ago. And apparently, she's kissed five women in different films. So sometimes people think that more than just yeah. that you're a good actress. <laughs> oh, so, I mean, there's been I mean, times have changed. If you look at like Katy Perry or Lady Gaga, they kiss mm-hmm. five women in a single music video. <laughs> the times they are a changing. They really are. <laughs> right. should, I, should I sit down or what? Sorry, I just lost it. Are we back? Now what am I supposed to do? I suppose we might as well finish this miserable film. All right. Following a bit of kinky, delicious sex with a smoking hot vampire siren, Susan Sarandon decides what would really top off the day is a dinner with her intensely boring and judgmental husband, Tom. He asks where she went for the afternoon, acting very incredulous at the idea that two women could hang out just talking for several hours. He's also suspicious of Sarandon's new Ankh necklace gifted to her by Miriam, wondering who gives a gift like that to someone they've only just met. This guy is both too suspicious to ignore what's going on and too dim to suspect the obvious. He should just give up at this point, but boys keep swinging. I should be concerned if she decides to rent a U-Haul the next time she goes over to visit her. (laughs) Sarandon waves off his concerns. She's European, wink, wink. Sarandon smokes yet another cigarette and pokes at a huge bloody steak. Since no one has commented on this, it is presumably the sort of thing she just has regularly. We can only assume she leaves behind a trail of destruction in the bathroom like a nervous horse. She comments that she's hungry, but it just doesn't look appetizing. I mean, she'd have to be a little peckish to order a gigantic porterhouse, I suppose, but we all know what she's hungry for, and she wants it, day in, day out. However, it's not all hungry glances and wistful sighs. The longer she is away from Miriam, the worse Susan Sarandon feels. She gets ill overnight, so she heads into work and everyone says hi. Her lab Uh. mates test her blood because why not? What's the point of having a top-of-the-range monkey battle arena and laboratory if you can't make use of the facilities? Dr. Snoop L. Jackson and co. tell her it looks like she has two different strains of blood fighting for dominance. They speculate that the second blood is not human, and it appears to be stronger. (laughs) Finally realizing that something is up, Sarandon goes back to confront Miriam. Back at the apartment, Miriam tells her that they belong to each other. 
which is no way to begin a reasonable conversation, and also tells her about the hunger that she will not be able to satiate on her own. Sarandon is understandably pissed. She only consented to kinky elbow-licking sex, not full-on vampirism. She storms out and tries to call her husband from a phone booth. Um, kids, before cell phones, we had landlines, and if you weren't home, you had to use a public landline and just hope you didn't get herpes from the handset. <laughs> well, isn't that something about the Golga Frencham arc full of telephone sanitizers? And then while the arc was gone, they died from a, a virus contracted from a dirty telephone set. So, you know, those useless people weren't all that useless. Yeah, and then yeah. Saint Nokia miraculously saved us all. She can't get a hold of her husband at work, and before she has the chance to dial another number, she's spooked by two ruffians who want to use the phone, one of whom is Willem Dafoe. Yes, that's right, Willem Dafoe shows up out of nowhere to be a seedy street person for like 10 seconds. Not even 10 seconds. I mean, he's in frame for, for I don't know how long, but it's really brief. But yeah, that's Willem Dafoe in his extra days. Not even featured extra days. They just jammed him into the frame. To be honest, it kind of looks like he just wandered onto the shoot and they kept it in the movie. Susan Sarandon is at this point about as calm as anyone who has ever been a few inches away from a ramsing Willem Dafoe can be. <laughs> you see him in the lighthouse? Boy, there's a rant. <laughs> oh, shit. That reminds me. I need to phone my uh, office supplies agent about, you know office supplies of a general medicinal nature. Tell your bug powder guy to get a goddamn email address like a normal person. If he was a normal person, he wouldn't have ended up as a bug powder guy. <sighs> I guess I have to give him that one. Oh, hey, yeah, it's me. I could really, really go for, uh, you know, some of that, uh, maybe some of that Alabama Cinnamon Man, and uh, I'm gonna go Creamy Douglas over here and just flat out fucking raid. <sighs> Shit, where did you come from? This is a private phone call. Look into my crazy eyes, fall before my hypno glare. I am this close to developing the grease spasms over here. Can I help you with something? Would you like to dance around in front of a slide projector? I have brought many slides of antique steam engines. Eh? Eh? Oh. Is this like a, like a bit? You know, we could get all freaky with tiny daggers. They can really give you a nasty paper cut. Listen, I don't know who's writing your material, and it's, it's kind of a lot, but I kind of like it. Eh, uh, is that a no? It's not a maybe. You know... I'm still working on that, actually. Uh, hang on a second. Yeah, no, listen, let me call you back. I, it's an interesting offer. Let me put it that way. Let me get back to you, huh? Ooh, maybe if I tried it with depressing post-punk synthwave in the background. Yeah. So, I just had an interesting idea. You know, um, so... This is all about vampires, and admittedly, it's not like there's any uh, real-world myths that have to do with vampires in red neon lights in their kitchens, but there are a lot of actual mythical uh, metaphors that show up in this movie. 
Having tried only one phone number and nothing else at all, Sarandon decides she has no choice but to go back to Miriam. The hunger is overwhelming her. Since she's really tweaking out at this point, Miriam kindly puts Sarandon in her gauzy curtain bed to continue her sexy flop sweat wriggling. While uh, she did you say tweaking out or twinking out? <laughs> tweaking out. <laughs> tweaking. I mean, because she is technically a twink at this point, right? Uh, kind of. How much of the budget do you think they spent on curtains? How much did they spend on baby oil? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you were saying about sexy flop sweat wriggling? Well, while the wriggling is going on, Miriam goes out to procure a gigolo on whom they can feed. While Miriam is out, Tom the husband comes over, it was way too easy to find a stranger's address in the 80s, and tries to rescue Sarandon. He's hey, the just to of... confirm, yes, it's way too easy to find people in the 80s and 90s. When I was in London for the first time, I just called up the equivalent of 411 and got David Attenborough's phone number and fucking called him. Oh, wow. What did he say? <laughs> He was he was pretty chill. Like he sounded a little baffled, but you know, at the same time, he like I think he recognized the fact that just some random American teenager had called him, and he wasn't he wasn't mean or nasty. He just was all thank you very much. I still feel quite humiliated that I did that. As you should. How dare you baffle a national treasure? <laughs> Access to to all European celebrities that you could think of, and you called David fucking Attenborough. That that's just. That's perfect. That's so on brand for you. Well, I, I kind of wanted to grow up to be him when I was a kid. Everybody else, you know, a lot of my peers amazing. wanted to grow up to be George Lucas, but I wanted to grow up to be David Attenborough. And so you did. Well, anyway, he doesn't know what's up, but he doesn't trust Miriam. She's way too European for his taste. He's the sort of person who makes rigid eye contact with the waiter while cheap parmesan is being twisty ground onto his pasta to make sure everyone knows how cosmopolitan he's being. Sarandon suddenly goes from being limp and disoriented to fully aware and able to fight off a man twice her size. And to be honest, she has real Rosie the Riveter butch vibe right now with her sleeveless tank and sweaty biceps. And Sarandon is rocking it. She yes. looks like uh, she looks like she pops the caps off beers with her thumb. Hot. She goes all cross-eyed and pulls out her tiny necklace dagger, trademark. The scene cuts away, but we know what's happening. In the heat of the morning, her fascination for fashion makes it hard to be a saint in the city. <laughs> okay, after that, if you're not getting the theme, just buy a Bowie album like a normal person. When Miriam returns, she leaves the gigolo unattended in a dark room and goes to get Sarandon so they can start tonight's dinner. Before she climbs the stairs, she notices the chandelier swaying. That room's a rockin', so she doesn't go a-knockin'. Instead, she stays downstairs and has some flashbacks to ancient Egypt, presumably where she was first turned into whatever she is. A reinvigorated Sarandon comes downstairs and Miriam gives her the rundown. She will grow to love Miriam and develop Stockholm Syndrome, and they will live forever. What she leaves out is that the never-dying bit includes an eternity as a living corpse in Miriam's gauzy curtain attic under a layer of dove shit. Yeah, eternal life does not also mean eternal youth. I always read the small print. 
As the two are making out slash feeding on each other, Sarandon takes out her tiny necklace dagger trademark and stabs herself. It's a bold strategy, to be sure. The tiny four-centimeter knife causes a wound significant enough to absolutely coat Miriam in blood. Presumably, she's gobbling it down like a chunky cousin that loose at the wedding buffet. Sarandon looks dead-ish, so Miriam carries her up to the gauzy curtained attic. She's seen it all at this point, and she knows to always have a spare coffin or two lying around just in case. She goes to add Sarandon to her coffin collection, but this time something is different. There is a whole heap of a ruckus from the casket pile. The collection of love mummies is restless. It seems that the battle of the blood going on between Miriam and Susan Sarandon has taken a major turn due to the previous bloodletting. Sorry, collection of love mummies. <laughs> yeah, I was proud of that bit. <clears throat> yeah, that was good. They, they were only most. Yeah, good. yeah. yeah no, well. it's, it honestly, like she, there's a big vibe of goth girl equivalent of the suburbanite kid with too many stuffed animals here, except for they happen to be mummified corpses. Yeah, once again, there. this movie was ahead of its time. It predicted beanie babies. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what that rattling sound was? Well, the whole stiff-as-a-board horde of hoarded board scores from before chases Miriam into a hallway. They back her up against a railing that she promptly falls over. She lands on the floor with a sickening thud and begins to rapidly age. Cut to black. Once you start showing your age, it's over for you in France. Discount Columbo comes back to the apartment to ask more questions about poor precocious Alice, the recipient of vile vampire on violin violence. This time, the door is answered by a real estate agent. He tells the detective that the owners moved and he was tasked with selling the place as is. Perhaps they've gone back to Europe. Oh, well, no need to investigate further. This is the 80s. Missing kids are a dime a dozen, and no one wants to call Europe to investigate potential murderers. The long-distance charges would be crazy. Can confirm. Missing kids were a dime a dozen so much so that they would put their pictures on the back of milk cartons. Yes, and for Gen Z, milk was a white substance we all used to drink before liquid cocaine became a thing you vape behind the back of the 7-Eleven. We know what you're up to. And this was, this was milk from cows, you know, before they figured out how to get it from almonds, soybeans, oats, what else? I don't know, peas. More things not to Pickles. look up on Google image search. Cut to Sarandon in her own gauzy curtained apartment with her next victim. And behind some of those tastefully flappy drapes, there is a coffin from which we can faintly hear Miriam calling out. Payback's a bitch. So if you notice, Miriam's coffin is behind a small chain link fence that looks almost identical to the one in the beginning that the not quite Robert Smith lookalike was dancing behind. Oh, hey, well, there you go. You got your, you got your head and tail matching, uh, matching imagery there. Well, uh, well spotted. I did not spot that. That's the kind of shit I was supposed to have been trained to spot. I'm a bad student. It's the Ouroboros just coming around, eating its own tail again. The whole wistfully looking out over the tastefully shot city aesthetic is all very Blade Runner. It's a shame she won't die. But then again, who does? Uh... <clears throat> it's a shame she won't die. But then again. We already did that bit. You're a minute late and a buck short, buddy. Oh, it's no use. I'm never going to achieve eternal youth. Oh, no. That train has left the station. Is that what all the weirdness has been about? You need to let it go. You're old. You're, you're just so old. <laughs> youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> he's, 
totally gonna die soon. Never gonna happen to my generation. <laughs> We're gonna be cybernetically enhanced. Back in your stinking hovel, you ancient he-crone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose that's what I get for trying to murder everyone. Wait, try, trying to what? Maybe put a lock on the door to the back room sometime. Mr. Guardian of the Doors. I'll add it to the other business next time. Top of the list, promise. Hey, I'm top of the list. Fix my damn shop. It's still on there. It's in like the top 10 issues to discuss. Well, it's 10-ish. <laughs> so that was definitely a movie. I'm not sure I get it though. Look, it's a simple story. Story as old as time. Boy meets girl. Girl turns boy into a vampire. 300 years later, boy ages rapidly. Boy meets progeria researcher. Sleep deprived monkey eats another monkey. Boy turns into a living corpse. Girl adds a boy to her collection of ended exes. Progeria researcher meets girl. Girl turns progeria researcher into a vampire. Girl promises researcher eternal life. Researcher overpowers girl. Girl's undead exes killer. Researcher starts her own collection of undead exes. Hey! What? Well, that's my bit. Huh. Well... What's fast as prologue? <gasps> Tale as evergreen now as it was in days of old. So this was Tony Scott's contribution to the sexy gothic 80s. All right, so um, let's move to judgment. Um, Ethan, what do you have to say about this movie? Uh, to quote my friend Mara Williams, who first turned me on to this film, all vampire movies are about sex, and the very best vampire movies are about gay sex. And boy, she wasn't kidding. This movie delivers on that point in spades. It cast three of the sexiest people alive in 1983. <laughs> Hell, three of the sexiest people of the, anything in the past 50 years or more. Unapologetic bisexuals all, and has them getting down with each other in a way hot enough to establish cinematic sex tropes for decades. Gauzy drapes blowing in the breeze. Get out the jurgens, everyone. It is time for some skin. It's also one of those rare movies which is better than the book, much better in large part because the movie doesn't bother itself with all of the book's oddly sweaty scientific rationalizations for vampires. Speaking of the book, it really is one of these pot boilers straight from the paperback shelves of Thatcher-era supermarkets. This book is a combination of late 70s neo-horror, medical science fiction, and Harlequin romance novel. Uh, it's bad, but not spectacularly bad enough to be anything more than mediocre. More than anything, the novel of The Hunger is extremely imitative of the top pop fiction authors of the era, Stephen King, Anne Rice, Danielle Steele, and Michael Crichton, all of whom are better writers because they committed to a single style. The pacing is rocky, and it has no fewer than eight graphic sex scenes within the first 150 pages. <laughs> sex scenes appear in every chapter, sometimes multiple times per chapter, and usually take between two and four pages apiece and occur on average every 20 pages, which is to say there is a lot of fucking in this book. I suspect the author was using all the sex in an attempt to hook readers with horniness so they would hang in there for his specious speculations about a secret super race of immortal hemovirus hominids that evolved alongside Homo sapiens. And remember, this is the guy who managed to bamboozle the Western world into believing in the existence of anally probing alien abductors from outer space a few years after The Hunger came out. As if a highly advanced extraterrestrial civilization would bother traveling all those light years to jam stuff up people's assholes. But, hey, I guess it only figures that the other universal constant is the propensity of intelligent life for juvenile pranks and butt stuff. Right, Zach? Oh, God. Right. Tony Scott was smart to cut all the intellectual and spiritual onanism for favor of the real thing. He knew people were just here for the sexy times, and boy, did he deliver. The hunger is a fat film for the ages. 
But I guess that's in keeping with his style because the next film Tony Scott went on to direct was Top Gun, which is the ultimate picture in military masturbation. Top Gun is basically Reagan-era military policy jacking itself off on screen. Uh, and it's helped to well, remember it's just that a recruitment commercial drawn out. Yes, it's a two-hour-long recruit. Yes, mil- Navy recruitment, actually military recruitment overall With shot through zero the zero plot. Oh yes. my god. Yes, it's basically I just. I can't. I can't hate on that movie enough. It's just F-14 porn the whole time. Um, <laughs> but it's important to remember that without Top Gun, we would never have had Michael Bay. Tony Scott's highest profile imitator. And without the hunger, we would never have had Tony Scott in the first place. And therefore, I declare this film overwhelmingly guilty of being a source of cinemania. Next. Okay. All right, Zach, what do you have to say about this film? <sighs> That's Scrutner, Zachariah. Um, the first time I saw this film. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm barely going to remember all your names. Don't expect <laughs> me to remember everyone's titles. All right, all right, all right. All right, the first time I saw this film, I think I was eight or nine because, you know, it was the 80s. Um, I had no idea what the hell was going on. The thing with the monkeys would have freaked me out a lot more if I hadn't already accidentally seen Phantasm. Uh, So this just seemed kind of incomprehensible to me. And watching it again now in my 40s, it still kind of seemed incomprehensible to me. I really don't get the point of the story other than, you know, here's this immortal chick who's been around since Egyptian times, cursed to live forever. So she occasionally, you know, picks up some guy who doesn't live as forever from her, but doesn't even really die. So she shoves him in a box and we all are wondering what's in the box. With all the other exes. Yeah, no no kidding, right? So um, I definitely think that this is a seminal piece of cinema in the fact that it helped spawn the whole goth movement and uh especially with the little onks that is such a goth trope but remember playing goth rhythm now with me i still have that card game (laughs) i do remember that uh but i am going to definitely say that this is a source of cinemania just from all the old problematic horny grandpas that pop out of the boxes at the end so yes this movie is guilty andy what have you to say about this film well i really wasn't expecting this film to hold up at all i mean everyone knows about the 80s goth thing that happens we all had to live through it but going back and looking at this movie it basically invented all of that stuff it was ahead of the game and it will have been an amazing splash of fresh water in the face to the people watching it at the time If you imagine these two directorial brothers, you had Ridley Scott obsessed with defining the future and asking questions about where we're going with Alien and Blade Runner. And then brother Tony Scott was obsessed with the now. He was looking at what's going on right now today in the clubs and in music and in what people are into and fascinated by. And he was defining what was going on at the moment. And in that way, this film was his way of saying, here we are in the 80s. This is what cinema is going to be. There will be doves. There will be gauzy drapes. There will be David Bowie. There will be sexy vampires licking each other. And the rest of us just had to live with that. He 
turned on the light switch of the 1980s in a big way and the films that followed so, and drew from the hunger so you're saying so. blade runners the look of tomorrow and this film is the look of tonight in a way you could absolutely say that although I think by tonight i mean very... yesterday and by tomorrow i mean technically 2016 so that was also marginally less yesterday but uh, <laughs> the metaphor holds up but uh, for better or worse this film kicked off the 80s and for anyone who's lived through the 80s it must be absolutely castigated for doing so and thrown into the blackest bleakest pit we have definitely guilty of cinemania absolutely 100 percent bravo straight off the top of the head well done <laughs> damn <Sorry>. all right <laughs> um andre what do you think of this film what have you what have you to say what is your judgment i mean like for me it was kind of like a whole different journey about like the existential crisis of aging itself and very much like an exploration of uh our deepest like carnal fears and what we're not usually talking about in casual conversation about like hey we're all gonna fucking die someday dude and like that was a big part of it for me but also probably just the mindset that i approached it with i at least in this particular part of my life where i am unmedicated I'll probably I tend to take these these kind of works rel I wouldn't say seriously, but very much kind of kind of on the more heavy-handed side, and that's what I definitely got from it was exploring those fears, uh, and then also just kind of learning about the history of the AIDS crisis, um, and just the fact that you know we were exploring death quite a bit and a lot of stuff people didn't want to fucking talk about uh, because, you know, our, legis our, uh, our legislators, at least here in the United States, were uh, literally cheering for this, this disease that was supposedly just wiping out the dirty gays. Um, so, uh, definitely exploring that, um, that despair and that just falling into ruin um, and uh, nothing but hopelessness was really what I got from this piece. And it was also beautifully shot. Like, yeah. the comparisons to Blade Runner and all of that, like, I just, yeah. I, I, the cinematography is just incredible. Like, especially, I... I, I've, I've worked on set uh, in the lighting department, so I might be a little bit biased, but I am just, I, I am dying to know what the setups were like for those uh, because just the way uh, that the shadows and the light were balanced was just absolutely immaculate. For some reason, the kitchen was lit red. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was the only questionable lighting decision to me, but yeah, absolutely. It, it was uh, beautifully, uh, beautifully, and, um, and beautifully shot. Yeah, you could also see just everything get like the shadows were creeping more and more as um, uh, David Bowie's character got older and older and older. Um, I didn't notice that. Well, yeah, spotted. no, it was. It, oh, my God. Like, again, just like approaching it from a more like, I guess, uh, uh, I'm trying to find a word for it, but like just a more genuine standpoint. Um, rather than being like, haha, vampire movie. Um, 
it was just uh it was it was incredible like cinemania in the best way really diving deep into not just cinemania but existential breakdown um and thusly it is guilty as fuck oh thank you for taking that deep dive plunging into this film uh as an tiny onk pendant dagger plunges into somebody's throat nice wah wah <laughs> and uh daniel what do you think of this film Listen, I haven't read the book either, but I have smelt the book. So I can tell you, it is dog shit. And um, Andrea, the girl one, yeah, Andrea. What's your what's your opinion on this movie? How do you judge it? That's what we're doing, right? We're still judging this thing? Yeah, it is very guilty. Um, even though it is hard to resist the icy, sexy vampire Catherine Deneuve, I would still say it's guilty because you should never put your lovers in a box in your attic, no matter how old they get. Yeah, I think just really as as a general rule of thumb, you shouldn't put anything alive in a box in your attic. Well, I, I wonder if she doesn't just see them as stuffed animals, like, you know, as a kid who can't bear to turn loose of their stuffed animals, but they just stick them up in the attic. I would also say that letting your small child go to a very spooky house for music lessons and not to check up on them when they don't come home, that's just bad parenting. It was the 80s. That was typical parenting. So are you saying it's guilty? It is absolutely guilty. Okay, that's everybody. So am I supposed to judge the movie now too? Yes, you're supposed to render your judgment as well. All right, well... I mean, this is a this is a seminal vampire goth movie. You know, it started the whole goth '80s movement. It's got David fucking Bowie, Catherine Deneuve, uh, Susan Sarandon. How can it not be great? You know, and it touches on so many issues that were poignant at the time. The lighting, the lighting is a criminal sin in this movie. Gauzy curtains. Uh, I have to agree with you there. M- muted daylight, and the the two times that there's Maybe three times that there's light. It's either a red bulb, a blue bulb, or a screen lighting them. I'm like, who lives like this? I can understand Deneuve, maybe, you know, the vampire thing, her house. She doesn't want a lot of harsh lighting. But Tom in the kitchen has fucking red lights. What, does he live in a tanning booth or something? What is up with this? So those were some artistic choices there. The rest of it kind of tracks with the 80s. So, I mean, I guess it's guilty of being very, very 80s. I'm Personally, I love this movie. It's really a great film, but it's just so heavy-handed with all of the I'm going to eat you and I'm dying and all of this. So, of course, it's guilty of Cinemania. I mean, whatever Cinemania actually is, I'm just trying to pick up from context clues because you guys won't fucking explain what Cinemania is. Anytime anyone tries to tell me, Andy just tells them to stop. And um, <clears throat> Moving on. Yeah, see, <laughs> there, my, my point exactly. As much as I hate agreeing with all of you. Yeah, I guess it's guilty. I'll just I'll just go with the consensus here. And I declare this conclave adjourned. Is that right? Is that what I'm supposed to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Good enough. Bang the thing. Okay. That episode of the Cinemania Society featured Andy Slack, Ethan Ireland, Daniel Scribner, Andrea Palladino, Zachariah Burks, Andre Luke Martinez, and Hope Bravo. Written by Hope Bravo and Andy Slack. Story designed by Andy Slack. 
Produced by Ethan Ireland and Andy Slack. Mixed and mastered by Ethan Ireland. Graphic design by Andy Slack. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com. Email us at thecinemaniasociety at gmail.com. And check out our social media feeds. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania and Reddit at r slash the Cinemania Society. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review wherever you found us. Mention us on social media or find us on Ko-Fi to throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but it isn't free. Anything and everything helps. The Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media, short films and the like. So stay tuned, Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society, LLC.